This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're fresh from celebrating a new year, but issues from 2011 abound, not the least of which is the global financial crisis. This week, we'll feature an in-depth interview looking at how Mexico and other Latin American countries may be part of the solution to Europe's problems. And we'll also look at Latin America's newest multinational diplomatic organization called CELAC. We'll have the views of a former U.S. ambassador to Peru and Nicaragua. But first, Lydia Bayoud gives us a roundup of news from the past week and the holiday season so we can catch up on what's been happening in Latin America. An appeals court in Ecuador has upheld an $18 billion fine against Chevron Corporation for dumping toxic material in the Amazon. It is one of the largest environmental fines in history. The suit was filed on behalf of more than 30,000 indigenous Amazonian people who have lived with pollution since 1972. Ginger Cassidy, a campaign program manager at Rainforest Action Network, says environmental groups like hers are hailing the court ruling. We definitely see it as a, a historical decision, but we also know that there's a long road ahead to get the compensation from Chevron and make sure that the region is remediated. Ecuadorans charged that the decades-long pollution resulted in high rates of cancer, birth defects, and severe ecological damage to the rainforest. Chevron says the decision is the result of corruption within Ecuador's court system and will seek legal recourse in courts outside of Ecuador. Venezuela's state oil company says it plans to pay $255 million in compensation to ExxonMobil for the nationalization of its assets in 2007. This statement follows an international arbitration court's decision to award Exxon compensation totaling more than $900 million. The U.S. oil company has demanded $12 billion. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez has called the company's claim arrogant and crazy. The comparatively small fine may vindicate his policies of nationalizing Venezuela's oil industry and boost public opinion for his upcoming election campaign. Exxon hopes that its second suit against Venezuela will bring heavier penalties for the loss of its investments. The country faces similar suits from other oil companies, but the legal battles haven't kept investors away. Chevron and Spain's Repsol signed multi-billion dollar contracts for access to Venezuela's Orinoco crude oil reserves two years ago. Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad will begin a tour of four Latin American countries this month in a bid to increase Iran's economic and political ties with the region. Ahmadinejad will meet with leaders in Cuba, Ecuador, Nicaragua, and Venezuela in what a member of Congress has called a tour of tyrants. Ahmadinejad has pushed strengthening relations with Latin America since taking power in 2005. Iran has pledged to invest millions in development projects like mining ventures in Ecuador and oil and ammunitions factories in Venezuela. Yet some of the smaller Latin American countries have seen only a trickle of that aid money over the past several years. American experts view Iran's efforts as a means to gain access to raw materials and circumvent economic sanctions against it for its nuclear enrichment program. Whether successful or not, Ahmadinejad's tour is likely to add to the rising political tensions between the U.S. and Iran. The Mexican Army and Marines are dismantling a nationwide communications network run by the Zetas drug cartel. 
The network runs from the U.S. to the Guatemalan borders and along the Gulf Coast. American authorities compared the network to the sophisticated systems used by military and law enforcement agencies. It uses handheld radios, hidden transmission towers, solar panels, and other equipment to enable communications deep into Mexico's hinterland. Mexican authorities, however, say the claims of the network's national reach are overstated. Brazilian authorities continue to fight slave labor practices in their country by adding 54 employers to what they call the dirty list. The 294 employers on the list maintained by the National Labor Ministry will be fined, suffer official boycotts, and will not receive credit until they stop their practices. To be removed from the list, they must sign a National Slave Labor Eradication Pact. The government says the additions to its list are due to increased inspections and reporting and not the result of more people working in slavery conditions. Argentina's president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, is recovering after her recent surgery for thyroid cancer. Vice President Amado Boudou was declared acting president just before the surgery and will continue to serve until January 24th while Fernandez convalesces. Fernandez is the fourth current South American leader to be treated for cancer recently. The others include Presidents Fernando Lugo of Paraguay, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, and Dilma Rousseff of Brazil. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. And now our first in-depth interview this week, a discussion with economist Manuel Suarez-Meyer. Suarez-Meyer once worked as an economist in Mexico, helping to negotiate the NAFTA treaty. And now he's at American University. He tells us about how Mexico and other Latin American countries are helping the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and other institutions during a time of need. We've been talking recently about the, um, the World Bank, other lenders now looking to Mexico as a source of funds and looking south as a way to solve the global economic process. I, I don't think many Americans know about this um, or, or really understand that they have looked at Mexico for a long time as a debtor nation, not as a lender. Mm, yes, um, I think that you're absolutely right. <clears throat> what happened is that we got into trouble uh, several times uh, for the same reasons that the Europeans are in trouble now. Uh, we were living beyond our means. Uh, we had a sp spendthrift government that uh, was collecting far less money than it was spending. And um, we had oil, which uh, allowed us to finance the splurge and the spending uh, for a while when the prices went up. But then, as we know very well, in 1985, well, beginning in 1982, but later in 1985, even more, more sharply, the prices of oil went down, and that was our main collateral for all the debt that we had acquired. So Mexico became bankrupt and was unable to pay its debt. Uh, that led us to uh, a series of renegotiations. Uh, that's why, uh, besides financial resources, I think that the most important contribution that we can make to the European, uh, to finding a, a solution for the European situation is our experience, because we went through the same process. We had a renegotiation in 1983. Uh, of course, we went to Brazil and Argentina, the other largest debtor countries in the continent, trying to sort of get together and, and do joint negotiations. They refused because they thought it was Mexico's problem. Uh, only three and six months later, in 1983, both of them 
fell into the same problem. And they they came to see us, and by the time we were not interested because we, we had already negotiated the deal, and we thought we could get away with it, it we didn't. So we, we ended up renegotiating in 83, in 85, in 87, and finally 89 and 90. Um, now, in each of these cases, what was done was not enough, exactly what's happening in Greece. You remember that the first time that the Greek issue was uh, approached was about more than two years ago, three years ago. And um, they apparently solved it, but it was not enough. And the markets eventually recognized that, uh, that the reductions in the debt burden would not allow the country to grow. And that means that if you are not growing out of your problems, that your possibilities of paying are reduced and the markets recognize that and attack you again. Exactly what happened and exactly what happened to us. Um, so eventually we negotiated a much broader deal. <coughs> we worked together with the U.S. administration and the IMF and the World Bank uh, with a package large enough to solve Mexico's problem for, for good. And that's what we did in 8990. And that entailed reductions in the debt of about 40% and extending the periods of repayment and uh, reducing interest rates, all of which worked. We, the famous Brady bonds after the then Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Nicholas Brady, uh, were exchanged for the old debt and, um, and uh, they became tradable and liquid and that solved the problem. With all those experiences, and then we, we had another relapse in 1994. That was uh, the, the, the new government's mistake. But anyway, in uh, in that occasion, we still had a major problem, which was a semi-fixed exchange rate, which blew up uh, in the 17th day, uh, in the 19th day of the Cedillo administration, blew up from three pesos per dollar to nine pesos per dollar. It was a massive devaluation. And there was a huge, um, uh, huge bets against the peso. And that's when President Clinton came about and said, uh, we have to, to rescue these guys, otherwise they are going to harm us. So he found money that uh, was not supposed to be used for such purposes. But uh, with that and um, IMF support and dragging, kicking and screaming, but dragging the Europeans and the Japanese, he put together a package of $55 billion, which at the time was a huge amount, and said, okay, we are betting all of this money uh, on Mexico's rescue because we believe that there's no structural problem there. It's just sp speculation in the market. And that's exactly what happened. We paid that uh, three years ahead of time. Uh, we cleaned up the mess. And since then, we've been floating the exchange rate, managing public finances in a reasonable way, uh, accumulating uh, international reserves. And today, Mexico doesn't have a debt problem, period. Mexico has a domestic debt, which is probably about 25% of its GDP. And as I said, an external debt, which if you net out the international reserves at the central bank, is zero. So now Mexico is willing to loan money to the Europeans to save them? Well, w what uh, Miss, Mrs. Lagarde came to Mexico, Brazil, and Peru, and um, part of the conversation is how can we uh, help 
solve the European situation. And we can help in, in basically in two ways. First, uh, we have to modify the way uh, the IMF is structured. And that way we can, uh, we can contribute more money, but also, in this case, our experience in dealing with debt issues. Um, so, Ms. Lagarde wants not only Lat the Latin American countries that can afford it, uh, which are basically Brazil, uh, Mexico, uh, Peru, Chile, uh, Argentina is in another basket altogether. Um, but she also wants the, the, the other uh, countries that have lots of reserves, particularly China, to some extent India and Russia, um, and the oil-producing nations to contribute more because if Europe has a serious financial problem, that's going to affect the rest of us badly. And no one wants that. So it can sink us, the, the whole world, into another recession, and we don't want to see that, that happening. But yes, you are absolutely right. It's, uh, it's peculiar that for the first time since the IMF was created uh, in 1944, that instead of receiving money from them, we are negotiating to give them more money. So perhaps the internal critics in Mexico who would say, don't give that money to the Europeans, invested in Chiapas, invested in Oaxaca, invested in parts of the south that, that are not nearly as developed as the rest of Mexico. To them, your answer is, you've got to do this. Mexico has to help save the world. Well, in a sense, it's saving ourselves because uh, if, if Europe enters into a, a serious uh, debt situation and you have uh, countries going bankrupt, that means that there, there we're going to have a worldwide recession. And uh, a recession doesn't benefit anyone. That will mean that we will have less money to invest uh, ourselves in, con in places like Chiapas and the Southeast in general. So we need a, a growing economy in the U.S., in, the, in Europe, and hopefully a recovering economy in Japan, as well as China and other countries that have been the engines of the recovery this time around, uh, in order to have uh, also uh, the possibility of growth. Because we are all now countries that are closely globalized, integrated with the rest of the world. And uh, the good old trick of um, uh, closing the border and uh, looking into ourselves uh, does no longer work. So in this case, it's not throwing money at someone to help someone uh, out of um, um, being a good guy, but to prevent another big recession that would affect all of us in, in very bad ways. Is this the beginning of, um, well, Asia went through its period with the Asian tigers. Um, Brazil, Mexico, Peru, is this Latin America's time to be the tigers? I hope I hope that would be the case. Uh, in, in we've seen very fast rates of growth uh, in South America, particularly associated with an extraordinarily uh, good conditions for their uh, exports of raw materials and uh, agricultural products and mining, etc. Mexico is a different story because Mexico's uh, industrialization and its links with Canada and the U.S. through NAFTA make it a very a different uh, case. Uh, 
Mexico competes with China rather than supplies China with raw materials. Uh, Mexico competes with China in the U.S. market. And by the way, we, we have been uh, now getting increasing benefits from the fact that Chinese uh, costs are going up very sharply, Chinese wages are going up very sharply, and many companies are no longer happy to be working in China, and they are returning to Mexico where they left about a decade ago. So the, the, the dynamics of this uh, moment of China sort of reaching a dangerous situation in terms of um, costs and inflation and so on and so forth is benefiting Mexico, and we are increasing our share in the U.S. market vis-a-vis -vis China. So, uh, but we have, we have good conditions to really start growing faster, but for that we need a series of reforms that have not taken place. And that leads us to uh, perhaps what we could have another conversation in the future, uh, because we also have elections in 2012. And uh, the, the most likely candidates uh, of the three main parties have already visited Washington in the last few months and have started outlining what they would do. And um, some of them are talking about the possibility of finally uh, making some sense out of the oil industry in Mexico. Uh, we need to modernize it. We need to revamp it. We need to create associations with the private sector in order to start drilling where we know there, uh, there are lots of resources, which is much deeper than we are drilling now, particularly the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so we have to do many other things to really get our act together and have uh, rates of growth comparable to those of China. Well, with that, we will end. Manuel Suarez Meyer, an economist at American University, thank you again for joining us on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much, Rick. It was a pleasure. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now we have selections from a pre-recorded interview with former U.S. Ambassador to Peru and Nicaragua, Anthony Quayton, discussing CELAC, an acronym for a new organization called the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, a group that includes all the countries in the hemisphere except the U.S. and Canada. And is this President Chavez's way of replacing the Organization of American States, the OAS? It clearly is an attempt by Chavez to project an image of Latin American solidarity distinct from the traditional OAS hemispheric uh, concept, which goes back now well over 100 years to the Pan-American Union at the end of the 19th century, in fact. Um, the trends in Latin America clearly indicate some desire uh, to put a little distance between Latin America and the United States. 
uh, and Canada, but the United States primarily. And there's a long historical tradition behind this. Uh, many of the countries who have joined CELAC, however, have no, made it quite clear that they have no intention uh, of in any way diminishing their relationship with the United States or with the organization of American states to which they also belong. The OAS is a vast network of institutions uh, covering development, uh, health, counterterrorism, counter drugs, and all of that work goes on with the full support of the vast majority of countries in the hemisphere, including uh, our neighbor to the north as well as all our neighbors uh, to the south. So the formation of this organization, do you see it then as um, uh, a typical Chavez comment about anti-imperialism? Well, that's certainly in his mind uh, that there has been historically uh, a, uh, an imperialistic impulse in American policy towards the region going back to the Monroe Doctrine of the 19th century and carried on through uh, many of the interventions that the United States took part in and led in the 20th century. Uh, and so there's a historical context in the mind of at least some of the leaders of Latin America who come out of this populist uh, tradition that this is a way of putting some distance between them uh, and uh, an imperialistic United States. Some people might wonder um, uh, why Mexico or, or, or why some of the closer allies of the United States go along with something like this. Um, um, some have argued, uh, isn't this maybe just uh, a lot of hot air and a waste of time? Is it more symbolism than, than actual reality? I think some of the countries, uh, I can't speak for the Mexicans uh, per se, uh, believe that it is important to be part of this larger endeavor so to, uh, that it will not run off the rails into a strident uh, anti-American, anti-imperialist agenda. I think it's fair to say that many of the countries in the region have assured us that the purpose of this new organization is not uh, anti-American, uh, although there are other countries who may think that it is, but that they are there in order to exercise a, a moderating influence and to make sure that as the hemisphere or as Latin America and the Caribbean speak through CELAC, they speak in ways which don't undermine the organization of American states or undermine their bilateral relationships with either the United States or Canada. Uh, let, let's take um, the opposite view of this f for a bit, because uh, the Chavez rhetoric would have us believe that the OAS is the a lackey of the United States, and, and the United States tends to run the OAS. Uh, isn't the view from Washington a little bit different, that, that actually the OAS is sometimes often ignored by the D.C. crowd? Well, it's clear that the United States has very substantial influence in the OAS. We provide uh, a, an important part of the resources that make it possible for the OAS and its uh, sister organizations to, to function. And if you provide the resources, you have a certain amount of influence. I don't know if there's any question about that. And we are the largest and most powerful member of the Organization of American States. Uh, and that is unlikely to change uh, in, in the foreseeable future. Uh, that the OAS always does the bidding of the United States uh, is clearly uh, not the case. The Honduran crisis of a couple of years ago, uh, the meeting of heads of state of the OAS, which took on the question of Cuba in ways that the United States did not favor, suggests that the, the OAS is made up of uh, independent states with their own views about a 
key set of issues and that they will speak out on those issues even if the United States has a different view or, or has a different policy. Uh, we can't, uh, we don't control the votes uh, of member states uh, and they, as at the United Nations, uh, frequently oppose particular things that the United States advocates or believes is, is, is beneficial. Uh, which isn't to say that we don't use our influence, that we don't try to influence outcomes, that we don't want resolutions passed in the OAS that are favorable to the United States' interests. Of course we do. That is not something, of course, we will have the ability to do in CELAC, where we are not present at the table. Well, in speaking more about the OAS and the Organization of American States, the last statistics I saw was that the U.S. provided a little bit more than half of the budget, and the OAS is here in Washington, D.C., and um, many of the the inter-American court functions also happen here in Washington, D.C., so there's a very much a presence and a footprint for the Organization of American States here in Washington, D.C. That said, we've talked on this program several times in the past about the policy retreat of the United States from Latin America, certainly in the past decade, where we've been more focused on South Asia, Southwest Asia, the Middle East. Um, is CELAC also a symptom of this U.S. retreat? I, I think retreat is, is entirely the wrong word uh, to characterize um, the uh, United States' relationship with countries uh, in the hemisphere. To my certain knowledge, over the last 30 years, it has been a constant complaint of Latin American countries across Republican and Democratic administrations in Washington that Latin America has, a low, has had a low priority or has o had only a priority which was driven by particular uh, crises, uh, the uh, crisis in Grenada, uh, the crisis in the uh, uh, Sandinista Revolution and so forth. Panama. Uh, uh, Panama, that's right. There, there have been a variety of, of cases where the United States has taken an, uh, an active and one might say an aggressive uh, a point of view with regard to problems. But throughout the, after the end of the Cold War uh, and throughout the first Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the second Bush administration, uh, it was a constant complaint in Latin America that other issues were trumping uh, Latin American issues. Those could be in the Middle East, they could be in East Asia, uh, the transformation of the Soviet, the reset in, of our relationship with the Soviet Union and so forth. Uh, there have been a whole other, uh, an other agenda in which Latin America has not figured. The truth is, of course, that the United States as a global hegemon has interests globally, and that setting the priorities of those interests is a challenge for any administration. And because our relations with Latin America are largely trouble-free, that we have uh, succeeded in developing uh, free trade agreements with Central America and the Dominican Republic, with Peru, uh, with Chile, and, and so forth, uh, and of course NAFTA uh, joining us to the Mexicans and the Canadians, um, almost 20 years ago, uh, means that there is not the necessity for high visibility activity by the United States and Latin America given the generally positive relationships which we have throughout the hemisphere. Uh, that's sometimes disappointing, of course, to individual Latin American countries who would like more attention uh, here. CELAC is not likely to increase the attention of the United States to Latin America. That will be driven by particular bilateral or religion, um, uh, regional con con concerns. Uh, the danger, I think, however, is that to the degree that CELAC uh, stakes out policies which are 
less well understood or, or less congenial for a particular North American administration is that there will begin to be an erosion of congressional support for the larger hemispheric effort, which is represented by the OAS and by our financial and other commitments. If that was to decline uh, in a moment of uh, national austerity, uh, you could see relations with the hemisphere uh, deteriorate. I won't, we're going to have close relations with all the countries of the hemisphere, but uh, the salience of those relationships could decline under, other, un under budgetary pressures, which would be fueled if, if, and I say if, CELAC was to uh, take on uh, a, an aggressively anti-American tone, as perhaps the Venezuelans or the Nicaraguans or others might want. In austere times, something for us to watch. That's all the time we have today. Thank you, Ambassador Anthony Quayton of American University for joining us today on Latin Pulse. Uh, it was good to be with you. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros, gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.